Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Okay, so we are beginning Parshat Emor, and, <coughs> pardon, right in the beginning, we talk about the requirements for what a Kohan can do and what a Kohen cannot uh, have or do. And right off the bat, one of the things that becomes very clear is Avi, the Kohanim have to seemingly be perfect. They can't have any blemishes. They can't in any way, shape, or form have any kind of infirmity or physical disability. And it almost, when I read this from the psychological perspective, I'm reading as if it's saying that there's some kind of caveat that makes these individuals not enough to be able to serve as a coin. Help us understand, Avi, because I'm sure that that may not be what the intention was. I'd love to understand from the Torah perspective. Sure. So there are two components that strike me as coming into play here. The first one is, we're going to go again back to the story of Cain and Hevel. Right? If you remember those stories going all the way back to the very first carbon that was brought and the two brothers who brought them. And so Cain brings some wheat and Hevel brings the best of his flock. And Hevel's uh, sacrifice, Hevel's carbon is accepted <coughs> while Cain's is not. And so that sort of sets the model in terms of what we want to bring. Right? We want to bring the best of what we have, not the, not the uh, leftovers, not the ones that we don't really want. Right? If you're giving a sacrifice to God, the idea is that it is the best of what you have. So that sort of answers part of why we choose to bring animals that are without blemish. Now let's talk about the people, the Kohanim and why we, we might not put a Kohen who has a blemish, a physical blemish, front and center. And I want to suggest that this has something to do with a human's natural instinct to be curious and to be distracted by that blemish. And at a point where you're supposed to be focusing on your relationship with God, when you are supposed to be there and looking at what it is that either you did wrong or you're thanking God for or trying to do tshuva because you're bringing a guilt offering, the 
it would be challenging to have someone in front of you who had a deformity that might pull you away from that state of mind and put you into a mental place where you were distracted and focused on that, um, on that feature rather than on what it was that you were supposed to be focusing in on. And while I think and I'm hoping that we've become more aware and more sensitive today, I think that there's still a certain amount of distraction, curiosity um, that occurs when people appear different. Um, and I'm hoping you can tell us more about why that is psychologically. I see what you're saying, and I appreciate that clarification. I, you know, I think it's a very interesting thing when we talk about um, any kind of physical difference, you know, where we, we've really gone very interesting ways, and I will say I still don't think that we have necessarily hit the mark. I think we've still missed what we need to be doing as a society, and as any society, I don't know every society, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most are probably not hitting the mark. If they are, and you're listening, please feel free to teach because there's a lot of people who need to learn. And I think that actually kind of hits exactly what I think is the issue, is we have gone from a mindset of non-inclusiveness, if that's a word, if not, you heard it here, um, where we say these people are different, there's something wrong, and thank God we have moved away from that. And instead we have moved, the pendulum has swung all the way other way to say, don't ask questions, don't, don't notice anything, don't comment, don't stare, don't do anything, which I think is a perfectly appropriate societal expectation for an adult. That being said, <clears throat> I think children benefit from being exposed to all sorts of different people and all and when I say different I don't just mean different because of physical uh, presentation I mean different because of different backgrounds different beliefs different cultures the more we know and the more quite frankly that we are accepted to ask at an age-appropriate time I think that helps with inclusiveness overall as we age into adulthood so what I'm getting at here is I think part of the challenge that I am seeing is it's almost an acceptance that we still struggle with this and this balance, and perhaps this is the Torah foreshadowing how we still haven't gotten things correctly insofar as young ones, children, can ask. They can ask things like, what is a wheelchair? They can ask how people use Braille or how different uh, devices, instruments, assistive uh, instruments are, are used without it being a negative. And I think part of the problem is, is many of us 
don't ask when we're children, and now many of us don't know. Yes, there are a crew who know, for example, uh, occupational therapists, right? They know a lot of the different assistive devices. Uh, people who, who are the creators and the inventors and the suppliers, they are aware of these different pieces. But the truth is, is that there's so much that is unknown that therefore when you're an adult and when you're then, say, in at, at, at the sacrifice and, and seeing the Kohanim doing their work, if you didn't ask questions and you weren't aware and you didn't understand, then you may very well be distracted as opposed to if you had the opportunity as a young one to learn and understand and accept, then it wouldn't be an issue later on. So Kiva, I want to have a conversation about expectations. One of the things that is expected of the Kohen is that he may only marry a woman who is a virgin. And there are all of these expectations of him in regard to, and particularly of the Kohen Gadol, in regard to the way he would dress, in regard to who he would interact with, in regard to who he may marry, um, and in theory, the reason that is given, right, is a combination of you act as a leader in the way that um, sets you up as a leader. Does that make sense? I guess what I'm saying is he's he right. You act the part. You act the part. Correct. Thank you. And part of it is public perception. And as a rabbi, I have had situations where people have approached me and they have had certain expectations, and I know this is true because I've spoken to colleagues, not just of me, but of other rabbis, that simply because we have the title, the expectation is that we are not just more knowledgeable, but that we are holier, or that we have higher moral values, or that, we have, uh, that more can be expected of us. Um, because of our leadership role or because of our um, religious nature, whatever it might be. Um, and so I was hoping you might shed some light on why that might be the case. Is it fair or not? So I, I think in part, I want to begin with the idea of how do we separate the, the piece of, of the woman's past versus the perception of the Kohen? Because in part, right, we just talked a little bit about how the perception of the Kohen, we talked about, you know, the, the aspect of the blemishes and, and where those particular instances may be a factor. And I think that falls a little bit more into that perception of the Kohen piece. I think the, the woman's past piece in many ways is very difficult in, in a variety of different aspects. So on the one hand, we can look at it from our understanding of things today 
and say, well, today we have a different view on sex. We have a view that, that sexual activity is perhaps not as special, not as unique, unifying, not as something to be saved. Um, however, I'm going to point out very clearly that the Torah references harlotry, which means that the idea that people had sex outside of marriage apparently is not new. So Oldest the, profession in the world, I believe they call it. I believe that was giving sacrifices. Um, well, that wasn't a profession. So I guess that's the piece that's very kind of difficult to, to balance because our perception may have changed, and yet at the same time it didn't. So I suppose if we were to look at this and we were to say, the Kohen can only marry someone who has never known another individual in those intimate ways. Okay, I can, I can kind of go along with where that may be meaningful until we look at the text, which I'm going to toss back in your direction, Avi, which says, you know, that can't be a woman who's a harlot or has been desecrated. And uh, then it throws also in a woman who has been divorced by her husband, uh, which, especially nowadays, very different. And I dare say, even back then, very different between somebody who is perhaps engaging in a profession which may lead to a community talking, and that's an entirely different issue, which we will certainly touch on at some point, and I believe already have and will continue to. However... There's one piece where we can say, okay, well, this is a perception issue. And there's the other piece where we can say, well, we know in, in Judaism that divorce is certainly not the same meaning as it has in other religions. And it's actually been something that we have uh, allowed from the, really, the very beginning because we understood that it was something that was important to consider. So why are these women all bunched together as if in one state... It, it, it passes judgment, it sounds. So I would suggest that <clears throat> the Torah often bundles together groups that aren't necessarily all the same, except for they fall into the same um, rule. So for instance, one of, the, one of the other famous groupings that the Torah uses is Chere Shotevakata, right? Uh, a, a katan is a child, a cheresh, uh, a shota is somebody who is, who is uh, uh, insane, not to use a technical term, but that's the way we generally describe Don't it. Don't worry, it's not a technical term. Good. And, uh, and, and, and a cheresh is somebody who's a deaf mute. And so those three are very different in terms of their abilities, but for certain things... They are bundled together in terms of their either inability or to, to perform a mitzvah or their inability to perform a mitzvah on behalf of someone else. Here, I want to suggest that these are all three women who cannot marry a Kohen, but they aren't necessarily equating them. And yet, at the same time, I will go back to the idea that whether it's back then or even today, when there is a divorce even if it's many years after the divorce and after people have been remarried, if people know about it, 
there is still a conversation about it, and there's still Lashon Hara that happens about it. And people will question, especially if the person is a leader, right? And I've, again, I'm talking about synagogue rabbis who, who had situations where people have said, gee, I wonder if he was the cause of why she and her husband got divorced, even if they met many years after the divorce occurred, right? Or, gee, I wonder if, right? And so the idea that this is a marriage that happens, right, um, in its most ideal format may have been part of the reason why it was structured this way. at the end of the Parsha, we have this interesting story about a man who has a, an Egyptian father and a Israelite mother, and he gets into a fight with a man who has both an Israelite father and an Israelite mother, and he curses him. It would seem from the context that that curse kills the man. And then the, the punishment, as told by Hashem, is that the, this person who has the Egyptian father and the Israelite mother should be put to death. There's a couple different things we could talk about here. We could talk about mixed marriages. We could talk about the fact that an Israelite mother makes you Jewish. But I think this is a place for us to talk a little bit about death penalty and why we might have it. And I don't want to get political, but to maybe help us try to understand why this exists, why it exists in the Torah, um, and is there a place for it in our society, and why we might feel that way. So that's, that's a not small question. Um, I will tell you that in the context when I was reading about this, I, I didn't pick up that the curse caused the man to die. Uh, so if that's the case, that in some ways changes what I would answer because I think it's right. it starts off with a blasphemer shall be put to death, which one would read in and of itself and say, hmm, that might be a little harsh. Reading further, we talk about taking a human life takes a human life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, and I think in some ways, it kind of sets the stage for the understanding that as a people, we we're kind of pre-programmed to desire some kind of retribution. And so in some regard, what I'm reading from this, again, if we're going under the idea that a blasphemer is not just someone who uh, inappropriately utters the name of God, but who curses someone using the name of God and therefore causes death, um, then I would say, perhaps, knowing what we could very well presume about other societies at the time, 
perhaps this was rather than what we look at now is an extreme reaction. It is, in fact, setting up boundaries for, okay, you, you broke my fence, I'm going to stone you to death, right? Which may have happened in other societies. And so rather than think of this as the establishment of capital punishment is acceptable, I wonder if the opposite is true. I wonder if it set the stage to say, just because I accidentally ran over your goat with my chariot doesn't mean you get to burn me alive. So I wonder actually as I'm listening to what we're talking about and as I'm hearing what you said as far as the blasphemer, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say that just like we have other laws that have been set forth before this Parsha that clearly set boundaries to say, this is what you will do, this is what you won't do, because other societies don't know those boundaries. That's what I'm thinking with this. I don't think it's actually a question as to whether or not the death penalty is acceptable or not, or whether capital punishment is appropriate. I actually think it's an opportunity for the Torah to lay out boundaries to say, you cannot overreact. So that's a really interesting idea. I like that concept a lot. The other thing that struck me here, especially as you were speaking, was we say, right, this is the part of the Torah where it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and yet the rabbis came very quickly to say, no, 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 that's not what we do. Just because you knocked out my tooth doesn't mean I get to knock out yours, but rather you have to pay, right, the, the worth of my tooth that you knocked out. Um, and yet, we still say that there is a place for the death penalty. And, you know, within many conversations, there's, there is a general acceptance that the death penalty does not necessarily um, stop people from... Right? As a general punishment, death penalty does not necessarily stop people from committing heinous crimes, and even from killing others. However, what it does do is it stops that individual from killing others again. And so perhaps the less, part of the lesson here is that this individual was considered so dangerous that he was willing to use this tool of the name of Hashem to kill someone else and had so little respect either for the person or for the name of God that they were worried he would use it again. And therefore, this was somebody who could not continue to live. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. Our question for this week's Parsha is, what expectations might you have of your community leaders, of your rabbi, of your federation, of your household? And are they realistic?
and do they know what they are? 